0: For epilepsy, there is hope. Hey, podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities, and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist, or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public, and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. Last week, we had a great chat with Simon Keller, Professor of Neuroimaging and Neuroscience at the Institute of Systems, Molecular and Integrative Biology, and Director of the Brain Lab at the University of Liverpool. This week, we are talking to Professor Leigh Sander, a Consultant Neurologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery and Head of the Department of the Clinical and Experimental Epilepsy at UCL Queen Square. A passion of Lay's is to work across the continents to empower those in low to middle income countries when it comes to epilepsy prevention, treatment and seizure control. And Lay also has a talent for photography. Check him out on Instagram. Lei actually also works closely with the Chalfont Centre, which is home to 92 people in permanent residential care and supported living services, and has a dedicated epilepsy research centre. So, I start by asking Lei, is the Chalfont Centre a powerhouse for research?
1: Well, you know, you need to see things in the context. Of course, uh, Chalfont is part of Queen Square, is part Mm -hmm. of UCL, UCLH, uh, AXIS. The assessment unit for epilepsy uh, within, um, you know, the biggest tertiary referral center in the country is epilepsy dedicated scan is a child fund. So worldwide, a lot of uh, protocols, a lot of um, scales, a lot of uh, guidelines, they are referred as the child fund protocol and child fund seizures scale as the child fund. The epilepsy uh, world, Chaffund, is quite a famous name. It's yeah.
0: really interesting, the, the history.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think that uh, we don't really know the, the sort of sometimes we forget the history.
0: And recent yes. history.
1: Yes. And I think that then we risk repeating the same mistakes we have made before.
0: And that's why it's so important, I think, for us to be sharing information to try and prevent other people, other cultures, other societies from making the mistakes that we have. Mm-hmm. No, well, we're far from perfect, let's face it, but we can all learn from each other, right? Yeah, yeah. And I guess, is that why you're doing lots of work outside of the UK as well? Yes, I
1: think that this has always been part of my... I started my professional life, and knew exactly what I wanted to do, I, I had a... A clear view that I wanted to work uh, with epilepsy. Uh, I had a I had a sort of personal encounter with epilepsy as a paramedic, oh. which left an imprint. Uh-huh. And this sort of led my like, career t- choice to work with epilepsy. And that has been the sort of most of my professional life. Of course, I trained as a neurologist, but as soon as I was you know, I got my wings. I started working with epilepsy, most of my workload. And that has been the case ever since. But my, the fact that I have been working a lot outside the, you know, in other countries, Yeah. Um, the reason for this is that I always was intrigued by the fact that the production of antipileptic drugs worldwide was quite small, mm-hmm. comparing to the potential number of people with epilepsy worldwide. So part of, you know, my field work for my PhD was done in Africa and in South America. And this was before air miles was before, you know, <laughs> the travel. And uh, I, I spent time uh, seeing how bad it was the life for people with epilepsy and, and you know, in and, and under-resourced places. You know, not only, you know, I was aware of the treatment gap. Mm-hmm. But I also learned that um, the treatment gap was not a simple issue, right. just you know, not having drugs. Well, not having drugs, uh, you would need drugs, you need a diagnosis. Having diagnosis, you need you know some sort of infrastructure that will help. But also the awareness that epilepsy is a, men- uh, is a sort of, not a spiritual thing, but a brain is it's something of the body, sounds important. Because in many places where you have uh, sort of autochthonic cultures, Mm. epilepsy is usually related to spirits and there's all sorts of uh, you know stories about uh, someone that has a seizure is out for a few minutes and then will be up and down you know without any problems later. So in part of the world that's a spirit that is in that person trying to get out yeah. So you can this is not really seen as a medical problem, uh, but you know, and then people won't see that they won't seek treatment, so you know, the, the treatment gap is much wider than just not having the drugs, but it's the awareness of the problem, then you know, it's the availability of the diagnostic, you know, is someone going to confirm that this is epilepsy, it's going to be the accessibility to treatment and to diagnostic. And uh, it's also going to be the sort of affordability, right? If we sort of look around the world, many, many countries, the national expenditure on health per year is less than $20 per
0: person.
1: Yeah. And if we have a treatment, you know, even a cheap epilepsy treatment nowadays, let's say, let's forget phenobarbital. But most treatments will be about 200 $300 a, a year. Uh, so you can see a country that is spending only, and they need to make priorities. And epilepsy is often not seen as a priority. So part of my work, since I did my PhD in Africa and learning a lot about what was going on there, uh, also under, trying to understand uh, how we need to learn uh, and how we need to, you know, to take this experience to improve things has led me to be involved in many projects over the years. So I have been back to Africa, I have done projects in Senegal, in Nigeria, in Cameroon, been involved with some works and in, in, in of course in Kenya. And uh, this really uh, just uh, in- reinforced my my commitment to try to improve uh, the lot of people with epilepsy in these sites. Because if we were, look worldwide, uh, if we were to invest in basic sanitation, you know, we could improve the life, uh, we, we could decrease the number, the burden of epilepsy in a big way. Let's say that, uh, you know, to develop a new drug nowadays costs well over $500 million. Right. But you know, if we were to invest this in uh, providing clean water, sewage systems, you know, basic sanitation, we could impact uh, worldwide epilepsy in a much bigger way. One of the things people don't realize is the commonest risk factor for epilepsy worldwide are actually parasites.
0: Right. So tell us more about that because yeah, nobody talks about it.
1: Yeah, because you know, it's not a problem here. Right. And we tend to be very sort of, you know, what happens around us. But if we were to look worldwide, and we would have to say what's the commonest risk factor, commonest, let's put it that way, cause of epilepsy, maybe responsible for as many as 10 to 15 million people with epilepsy worldwide, is actually a tapeworm. It, it's actually the, the pork tapeworm, uh, Tinea solium. Yeah. And uh, when actually uh, humans, um, due to the lack of basic sanitation. Uh, they mix up, uh, you know, feces with foodstuff and water. Uh, you know, humans can be the pig at the situation and be the intermediate host, the tinea solum. And for some reason, in, in humans, tinius solium, uh, the larva, the, the sort of cyst in, in between the adult and the... It actually has a tropism, has a tendency to go to the brain whilst in the pig it goes to the muscle, and they hope that we will eat it
0: <laughs> the hope yeah. they, these are cheeky things aren't they it's Just almost that. like they secretly evolve almost before our, our eyes but we don't see it and they're like you're a nice host yeah. we can breed in that that'll work yeah
1: yeah and and it was very interesting to see in the early 1900s when uh the sort of British uh, military men started to come back from India after a, uh, a sort of uh, being stationed there, bringing back cystic from India. So it was very interesting that, uh, how this was found out and understood and some of the observations that the, the doctors made in the, well before any type of scan, they still stand and we talk about basic epidemiology. So uh, cystic psychosis uh, psychosis is when the, the state warm into medium form colonizes the human brain. And, um, you know, it, it can pass without any symptom. But if it's going to cause symptom it's usually seizures, right? So um, a lot of people uh, in South America, Peru, Ecuador, um, Central America, Parts of Paraguay, Brazil, Bolivia, in uh, West Africa, in Madagascar, and parts of India, particularly, uh, uh, particularly sort of uh, north, uh, part and south of India, uh, parts of China, they have a lot of this bug. And you could argue that if we were to work, uh, we don't have to eradicate. The the, the the worm because you know you could argue that it's not always the best thing to do but if we could just separate human waste from you know the food supply or the water supply we could do much more to um, relieving preventing epilepsy worldwide and this is not the only uh, parasite that uh, is associated with epilepsy uh, we have for instance nowadays it's becoming More and more circumstances are coming forward to a point and provide evidence that something called uh, uh, onchoclesiasis, which was known to cause what's called river blindness, can also cause epilepsy. So that's another bug that we could probably do something about to send it to where it belongs and, and then decrease the number of cases of epilepsy, particularly in kids in vast parts of Africa. We have, of course, uh, falciparum malaria, uh, which can actually cause brain malaria or cerebral malaria. Kids that survive this often will have bad epilepsy afterwards. So you can see how, for me, uh, working in this place has brought me in close contact uh, with this reality, which we hardly see here indeed. But it's an important part of the of the load of the burden that epilepsy imposes on, on on the world.
0: And do you know what I I I've said this multiple times to other people. I, I and I think it's a really important message for governments. Going back to what you were saying, you know, hardly any money is spent on healthcare in many um, poorer countries and areas. If these governments were able to spend more money in preventing the epilepsies, whether it be through providing cleaner water, or whatever it might be, you're going to have a healthier population, you're going to have more people working, you are going to have more people being able to pay tax, You you are just going to better the whole country. And people will vote for you <laughs> it's such a ah, no. it's a huge huge benefit to an entire population to better the lives mm-hmm. of people affected by epilepsy and i think that that's rarely seen
1: there are two ways of looking at this uh we have to sort of show that uh you know working in prevention in many of these countries you know you could argue that they they really have other priorities yeah but you know, well, uh, you know making prevention uh, for instance preventing stroke they will prevent many cases of epilepsy yes which are brought on by stroke uh, improving perinatal care you know providing you know midwifery you know, providing maternity or uh, pre and, and 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 perinatal care that could decrease the number of people that will have uh, trauma at delivery
0: Mm-hmm, that will
1: mm-hmm. have problems during uh, pregnancy, which later will translate into epilepsy. Yeah. So there's a number of things that, and in, in my, you know, in my view, the way forward should be really, uh, we should really be working on preventing as many cases of epilepsy as we could.
0: Now, what, what do we need? What do people listening to this podcast, this and watching our video? What do we need to do in order to help people affected in this way?
1: Well, I think that it's very important that we need to always have a coordinated approach to, you know, I have seen so many people, what I call missionary <laughs> approach, they go and say, Okay, I will help people here for a while, I will go and move, work, do this and that. But these sort of things are usually they're not, they don't have sustainability, right? You know, the person then finished the time where they went, and when they leave, particularly if there's not really a, a proper infrastructure created, right. uh, things are going to collapse. And sometimes they 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 cause more problem. I have seen some of this missionary approach mm. uh, bringing phenobarbital to areas, and then two, three, le- three years later, uh, people go back to Canada or to Italy where they came from, uh, and and then you know suddenly things uh they are not there anymore so you know people then have withdrawal from phenobarbital and that can cause more problems and increased risk of
0: sudep as well because i think sudep's that issue is rarely rarely covered as well is it we just talk about seizures and controlling those but risks of sudep aren't covered
1: well everything in the third world that i have come across the death of young people with epilepsy is staggering We have seen this in Africa, we've been publishing about this for a while. Yeah. We have published a series of studies from rural China, uh, showing that, um, you know, mortality is so high that when I came across this first time, uh, I was so surprised and I I sort of said, you know, that cannot be, you know, they must be bumping off people with epilepsy. Uh, But then I realized, for instance, uh, uh, working in a part of China called Sichuan, where there's a lot of paddy fields. Right. So so you have epilepsy, you're not able to immigrate to work. You're gonna stay in your village and the only thing you can do is work in the fields. And so you're in the paddy field and you have a seizure. So it's not surprising that in this area, the number of people with epilepsy drowning is 80 times higher than the drownings in the general population.
0: 80 times higher.
1: 80 times higher than in the general population.
0: So for so issues like what that,
1: what do we do? How how do we help people? You know, there, is, there is quite a lot China has done. I think that you, you may have which wheels that China want to have, but they really have taken seriously the epilepsy. They have taken this uh, as a very low priority to, you know, quite a high priority. Epilepsy centers, tertiary, secondary have been created in you know, and there is a national epilepsy uh, program. So, millions of people have been uh, treated within this program, Okay, they have been identified. Can you imagine a BBC One uh, presenting a 40 minutes um, program on epilepsy, teaching about epilepsy?
0: Wouldn't that be wonderful?
1: About 20 years ago. So, you know, it was like BBC One having a whole, trying to tell the population that epilepsy was a problem uh, of the brain. So that China has really done this and the other country that has um, done quite a lot and trying to improve, you know, decrease the treatment gap has been Brazil. And both of these countries had in common was a demonstration project uh, in the early, late 90s, 2000s, where they were trying to see what could be done to improve, demonstrate that epilepsy uh, care could be um, could be improved, and uh, I think that China is by a long way the flagship of this WHO International League Bureau uh, program, Epilepsy Out of the Shadows, and you know the legacy of this is that in China nowadays uh, is is um, is at the forefront uh, of providing epilepsy care, and they are really making strides in the in the research front. This was uh, even reflected recently on an article in The Lancet about how China epilepsy has progress in China. Uh, but you know, it's too bad that uh, we don't see this in other places. It can be done. You could argue that in China doing things is different. Uh, if you have the goodwill of the right people, it happens. Mm-hmm. But you know, it might not be too easy in other places. But uh, I would I would show that I would actually always say that the example of what happened in China. Uh, well, just tells me very strongly and in, in loud sound that things can be improved uh, for epilepsy for people with epilepsy.
0: And that also improves things for carers and stuff as well, like mums and dads and siblings. I often hear about lots of siblings understandably get kind of not pushed to one side, but left.
1: This is a very common play, uh, thing, having someone with epilepsy, particularly if it's active epilepsy, impose mm. a burden on the, you know, brings shame to families right. in many countries. You know, I have seen in Africa, uh, kids being more or less incarcerated, you know, chuckled to the wall of, of a house because they had epilepsy and they could not be seen by anyone. And, and this is, I have seen, it's not they told me, So these sort of things uh, do happen, Uh, particularly because of, you know, the stigma that epilepsy still carries. Mm. Uh, It's quite strong in many places. But, uh, you know, uh, working to decrease the stigma is something else that we should actually be doing. We need to sort of work decreasing or bringing down the stigma around epilepsy and, and then trying to prevent as many cases as we have. And and, you know, this would be uh, this would be a a good uh, way um, forward.
0: It's a very long term project, but there are huge steps that we can take relatively easily. But I, I think, I mean, for instance, as you know, I'm a person with epilepsy trying to talk about it and raise awareness. Do I look like somebody with epilepsy? Not that I'm aware of, there is not a look, right?
1: it's another <laughs> you <there's> know <laughs> to many people this is something that affects them one or two minutes every so often and 99.9 of the time you know there's nothing to say yeah. but you know uh in many places still calling someone epileptic is an insult
0: yeah well even i, I remember at school be... people would say oh epi attack if somebody freaked out and i'm um, like as in somebody got stressed out and I would find that really offensive. And like, darling, you have no idea what it can be like to have a seizure. And don't say that as a a derogatory statement because how offensive is that? And I know it's happening less over here now, but the fact that that does still happen, you know, we're all of the same species across the world. And we all have these tendencies to say very inappropriate, offensive things. But I guess because we're all, well, Great percentage of us are now online and we can share information. I think it's an opportunity for us to share credible information and you know for us to see people who are able to sometimes achieve things like, do you know, I don't know if I told you before, I was in India before lockdown and I would have, um, I was there to speak about the epilepsies and family members could not believe that one had travelled on, on, you know, on my own when I have epilepsy. (laughs) And I thought it was a really, well, it's quite shocking for me, but then it made complete sense because if you are in a society that in which there is such a great stigma about epilepsy, there isn't easily available information. Lots of clinicians even aren't up to date on the latest. It's understandable.
1: Yeah. In India, it was only in the 1980s. Uh, that uh, the constitution changed, or the law changed, so before that, if a partner found out that the other other partner had epilepsy, that would lead to an annulment of the wedding.
0: Right, I heard that.
1: I think that the fact that people see you there, that you travel, that gives a good um, role model for them, saying, you know, they can actually... People with epilepsy can, um, you know, can be there. They can travel. They can do anything. So it's uh, it's very important for people to have these role models, even if they are coming to visit from another country.
0: <laughs> yeah, like they had this nutter coming over. Like who who is she? But then you know what, uh, kind of contradicting what you say. I think it's very important for us to accept we do a lot of us do have some limitations but that's Mm -hmm. nothing that one should be ashamed of if I like I can't drive uh, both you know legally and ethically it would be ridiculous for me to attempt but um, I try and find ways around that I wanted to be a commercial pilot or a surgeon that wasn't going to happen and so and it shouldn't because you know um, but I'm doing my best to try and help people in other ways but it is a you know a uh, sort of it can be a hard thing to get over, especially, I think, if people are diagnosed later in life. So like, for instance, like you say if you have a stroke, which generally happens in older people, you have to give up a lot, a lot, yeah. and that can be really almost traumatising for people. I know a yeah. lady who had a brain tumour and developed epilepsy, and she's like, what, what do I do now? She can't do her job, she can't drive, duh, duh, duh. So I think, yeah, there are different issues for different people, right?
1: Absolutely, you know, and the the way things affect people, uh, they're very different according to, you know, the person's expectation, the person's perception, the person, you know, sort of environment. And, you know, uh, uh, and in some societies, this can be even more, uh, you know, it can lead to very different, um, let's put it that way. Impacts on, on the person. I have only seen one thing that I always tell people that a sort of positive thing of having uh, seizures that was seen like, a let's put it that way, a positive stigma. And this was a sort of Amerindian group in the Andes, in the sort of uh, border uh, between Colombia and Ecuador, where for you to be able to be a shaman, which is a very important post in the society, you had to be touched by the rainbow. And to be touched by the rainbow, uh, people would say, if he was touched by the rainbow, they have a seizure. <laughs> so th- that was the sort of only thing I have ever come because everything else has been sort of um, relatively negative. Uh, We have recently been able to interview uh, people from a specific community uh, five different groups within this community about the beliefs about epilepsy and it was quite interesting to see that most of them uh, see epilepsy around the spiritual things Uh, so this is a recurring issue that um, you know uh, we do not see this when we see it from a rational point of view, our rational point of view. Mm. But understanding these sort of things would be very important for us to go and try to improve things because we need to work with what people believe.
0: True, yeah, exactly. And not come in, uh, like I think some people approach these situations as if they think, well, I am higher than thou and you must listen to me. That to is that. not gonna work. It's so disrespectful as well.
1: You, you cannot just parachute yourself into situation. You need to really, work with what's there. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I I sort of have a, a very strong memory of a scene in my clinic, where I was talking to a person from a ethnic background. And we were discussing um, the gin that had uh, been in this person that was causing seizures. And um, my drug was actually fighting the gin very well because it didn't have a seizure one of my junior doctors saw that and felt very upset, saying that I was propagating superstition. But I said, Well, you know, I spend twice a year, 10 minutes with this person, this person goes back to their family, the grandmother, aunties, everyone around, you know, who are they going to listen? Yeah. So if I align myself to what they think, and this is working, this is good, it's a good outcome. So, because otherwise, you know, if I try not to take this into account, uh, and trying to tell off you shouldn't do, you shouldn't believe it. Mm. it's not like that. We should do it because people have these strong beliefs and us trying to understand, the, what people sees as their health and their, the cultural beliefs about health seeking, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you will only seek how health help. If you think that something is to do with the body
0: we all have our presuppositions don't we whether we are conscious of them or not and i think just being open to one another and oh. rather than poking you know a paper in front of somebody and saying well darling you should you should read this and this is going to prove that your your presuppositions yeah. are wrong it's it's certainly not going to help i think both short and, lo- and long term and we should just be Open to one another and you know provide each other with information about culture about about beliefs and there's nothing wrong I think with with talking about this stuff, and as long as we're not being aggressive about it and we're just providing people with i don't know like uh, information. help information yeah, yeah. A- and help and um and, th- and knowing that one another is there if pe- if somebody has a question, that's that's great, right?
1: Uh, we should never think ourselves, as you said, above or superior.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we need to take, and we need is an exchange. Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. So uh, and uh, you know we need to always looking how we're we gonna use all this information. How we're we gonna use this to go to the next step, which is to actually um sort of try to do something that will improve the life of of people but not the life that we think is good life for them but the life that they think is a good life for them
0: it's like empowering other people isn't it Yeah. because if you feel empowered stronger if then life becomes quite different and that is really important for us no matter the continent upon which one (laughs) resides it's so crucial I know that you're doing work with um, Helen Cross, Arjun Sen. You've got this organization, um, and I can't remember what it's called. Uh, Epina. Sorry, what's the name of it again? Epina. Yes. And Uh, so can you just tell us a a little bit about that and how people can find out more if they're interested?
1: It's a project uh, sponsored by the NIHR. Mm -hmm. So, you know, going to the NIHR site, you will find information about it. Uh, epilepsy in Africa and it will come up. Uh, This is uh, work that has been uh, carried out. uh, It's been affected by COVID as everything, but it's to provide improvements uh, in the way that people seek uh, help. We're using modern technology like uh, mobile phones. We're using uh, internet uh, to create ways that we can actually remotely diagnose, that we can actually uh, monitor uh, things you know trying to improve uh, on adherence of with people uh, and, and 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 this uh, is work that we hope will be, uh, be we will be able to scale it up and to expand it in other places we need to be very realistic that um, you know most sub saharan African countries they will have one neurologist for every hundred thousand right people yeah. So you cannot expect that, either you know, there will be a neurologist everywhere to diagnose epilepsy. Many countries don't even have a scanner, mm. an MRI scanner. So, you know, you need to actually see how other things that we can use, you know, how can we use this more of a global village nowadays and uh, to provide help. Africa is very advanced when it comes to using their mobiles mm. for finances. You know, Kenya, the m pesa system is, is brilliant. It's one of the sort of very early um, adapt, uh, you know, people getting to a more or less cashless society mm-hmm. and, and the instrument is the phone. So if we could harness this sort of things to improve the health uh, to, you know, to that would be great. And this is what we're trying to do through this programme.
0: That's so uplifting because most of the stuff, as we were kind of saying about epilepsy is pretty horrific, but knowing that there is hope out there and that we're reaching out to one another to learn from one another and You know, and again know that there is hope I think that that's really cool And also just referring back to what you brought up earlier the whole worm situation Most people have no idea about these worms yeah. And oh, do you know what I saw a video um, recently of a charity Travelling to one African country and the lady had gone to the loo for a number two not washed her hands then went to prepare food for her child um and the visitor the, uh, the film crew and there was feces on it and they just yeah and this is like today that this still happens yeah. and this but the lady yeah. just had not been told that washing one's hands was a great idea in order to help prevent infection yeah. and contamination uh, you know
1: this is what i'm saying it's part of the idea of providing basic sanitation Yeah it's also to teach people what it means and you know uh, not teaching but helping them to understand what it means you know who are asked to teach mm-hmm. you know we might share our experience that if we do this this might not happen so this is um, and, and it would go a long way in decreasing problems worldwide uh, if we were to invest in public sanitation <laughs> basics it's
0: just it's such a to us a simple thing but yeah thank you so much for joining us to raise awareness of this it's yeah. honestly it's so wonderful and look everyone listening or watching we're only a few hours flight from everybody else in the world but there are distinct differences in quality of life quite frankly but sanitation and access to health care and that needn't be It really shouldn't be. So, but there is hope. So look, we have Professor Laysander here. Thank you so much for your time. And yeah, we will no doubt one hope. See you again. Thanks so much to Laysander for telling us a bit about what's happening for many people affected by epilepsy in low to middle income countries, what he and his colleagues are doing to help them, and perhaps helping many of us realise how lucky we are in comparison. One of Lay's most recent papers is regarding the role of common genetic variants for epilepsies with drug resistance to specific anti-seizure medications. Check out the link below. Next week, I shall be chatting to Professor Gavin Woodall, a neuropharmacologist from Aston University, Birmingham, UK, and director for the Institute of Health and Neurodevelopment. Or as Gavin would say, mostly I just run a lab. Follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook, and we'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show do subscribe to our podcast and know that we are always trying to improve what we are doing here for the programme. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.